This is the first section, Awareness, and the quote is from Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb, lyrics by Roger Waters and David John Gilmore. You're only coming through in waves. Your lips move, but I can't hear what you're saying. I can't explain. You would not understand. This is not how I am. Chapter 1. Bagpiper on the Highway. Heading. What you would have seen that night. If you'd been driving along the highway that night, you'd have thought they were shooting a movie. Southbound traffic suddenly crawled, and eventually, on the grassy median, inside a barricade of three sets of flashing lights, fire truck, ambulance, and state trooper, you see an old blue Volvo rammed against an embankment, its trunk crushed into the back seat. Not far from the wreckage, you see a tall teenage boy playing the bagpipes. Three firemen surround him, grinning as they train their walkie-talkies on him, his blaring drones and the melancholy wail of the pipes. The kid stood there as casually and coolly as if he were playing for dollar bills in Harvard Square, which he often did when he needed the money. The man standing off to the side watching all of this, forehead in hand, trying to take it all in, was me, his dad. Andrew didn't know it yet, but he'd sustained three spinal fractures in his lower back. And I didn't know it yet, but I'd suffered a traumatic brain injury. Heading. The Backstory. Once a week, either my wife Lynn or I drove our second son, Andrew, to his bagpipe band practice from our home in Harvard, Massachusetts, to Wilmington, a 45-minute drive. On September 21, 2005, at about 9.15 p.m., Andrew and I were cruising home in the middle lane at about 65 miles an hour on I-495 in my 1993 Volvo 240. We were listening to a Red Sox game. Third baseman Bill Mueller was at bat when, without warning, something slammed us from behind so hard we careened all over the highway. It took long seconds for me to get control of the car as I shouted, Oh my God! Oh my God! In the panic of those seconds, my windshield looked about a foot wide. If a car had been to our left as we went into the fishtail, that probably would have been the end of his story. Of this story. If a car had been to our left as we went into the fishtail, that probably would have been the end of this story. But somehow we came to a full stop on the slope of the left-hand median strip between south and northbound traffic. Andrew was the calm one. Dad, are you okay? Yeah, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Dad, are you sure you're all right? I guess he asked me a few times because he had never heard me shout like that. We got out of the car and saw the trunk accordioned into the back seat. That's saying something, because the 1993 Volvo 240 is built like a small tank. I called 911 and then Lynn. My head hurt, but I didn't have a mark on me. Andrew had a gash on his knee from ramming it into the dashboard, but aside from some jitters and aches, we both seemed fine. 
A UPS 18-wheeler pulled onto the median, and the driver asked if we were all right. He must have seen the whole thing from a long way back. Another man ran over, crossing three lanes of traffic to get to us. He said he was a nurse and asked if we were all right. He pointed up the opposite side of the highway at the gold Mercedes that had hit us. A state trooper was already there talking to the driver. An ambulance arrived. Two EMTs stepped out and asked me the usual what year is this and who's the president questions. Then, do you want to go to the ER? I double-checked with Andrew that he was okay, and because I felt overwhelming relief that we were both alive, I told them thanks, but no, we were going to be okay. Months later, given how that night changed my life, I asked my case manager if we should have gone to the ER. She said that since I wasn't bleeding, hadn't blacked out, and could carry on a conversation, they would have given me two aspirins and sent me home. Heading. Officer Miranda and the Bagpipe Fans. It's easy to remember the state trooper's name, Miranda, as in the you have the right to remain silent Miranda rights. He asked me what happened. I pointed across the highway to the guy in the Mercedes and asked, what did he say happened? He said you'd come to a complete stop in the middle lane. My jaw dropped, and Miranda said with total scorn, I know, he's an idiot. He made notes on what really happened and then went to his car to write his report. It took me a year to talk about what happened next without choking up. As traffic roared past us, and firefighters and EMTs all milled around us, we were surrounded by the bright flashing lights of the fire truck, ambulance, and state trooper car. Men from the Chelmsford Fire Department asked if we wanted to retrieve anything from what remained of the car. I'd mentioned that I had a full tank of gas, so they wanted to walk us over with a fire extinguisher. I said, yeah, Lynn's birthday present and Andrew's bagpipes. It turned out one of the firemen was a huge fan of bagpipes. I was just listening to bagpipes in my car. And he started asking Andrew questions about his piping band and that coming Saturday's Highland Games competition. In the midst of all that chaos, he then asked Andrew if he'd play something. He said, sure. Then he opened his case, put the pipes together, and played a gorgeous, powerful medley. The firemen trained their walkie-talkies on him so the guys back at the firehouse could hear him too. He's played since he was 12, and by 16 he had gotten really good. I mean, beyond his years, good. If the pipes are played right, as he played them that night, they can be at once celebratory and funereal, joyful and melancholy beatific, and soulful. After Andrew finished and we climbed into the cruiser, Trooper Miranda turned his siren on and, with all his lights flashing, edged his way into oncoming traffic. In the back seat, Andrew and I looked at each other, astonished, as he navigated us across the highway. He dropped us off at a rest area directly across from the accident where Lynn was waiting for us. As Andrew and I got out of Miranda's patrol car and walked toward her, we saw the guy that hit us. Heading. The perp walks.
He looked like somebody out of Central Casting if you were casting a movie about the Hell's Angels. He was limping. We made eye contact, but he didn't say a word to us. He didn't say sorry or ask how are you guys. Nothing. I only saw him that one time, but I've wondered since if he has been told what Andrew and I have been through. If he had beaten us with a baseball bat and we sustained the same injuries, they would have handcuffed him and he would probably be in prison for assault. For whatever reason, and the reason why he was not imprisoned was explained to me a few times, but I still don't get it. He was free to go home. Something about having a valid driver's license and no evidence of being drunk. Heading. Late that night. After we got home, I was still shaken, but grateful that Andrew and I were still alive. I stared at the ceiling that night in bed, amazed that I lay there breathing next to Lynn, and that Andrew and his younger brother Will were sleeping peacefully in their beds down the hall. Our eldest son Chris had just started his first year of college. I was glad to imagine him at that moment, reading a book or hanging out with some new friends. I've been told that the Mercedes had to have been going over a hundred miles an hour to flatten the back of a 1993 Volvo 240 cruising along at about 65 miles an hour. I shuddered to think of what might have been with all the heavy truck traffic across three lanes of I-495. I learned later that state troopers refer to this stretch of highway as Death Alley. When we sing about grace in church, I think about us in that Volvo, delivered safely to the median strip by God and Swedish engineering. As I said, Andrew fractured his back in three places, an injury that is not healed. He lives with constant pain. His brain is fine, although he too had a concussion and some lingering post-concussive symptoms. This led his pediatrician to impart this wisdom. Quote, the reason you and your dad are recuperating at a different pace has to do with brain plasticity. Your brain is veal and your dad's is roast beef. Perens, I have since learned that the reverse might instead be true. Because a young person's brain is more malleable and still in the formative stages of development, an injury might have a more lasting and serious impact than an adult might experience. I often think about those bagpipes that night. Pipers traditionally perform at ceremonies that commemorate a beginning, like a wedding, or an end, like a funeral. Andrew's performance on the median strip next to our crumpled car looked and sounded like the happy conclusion of a close call. We couldn't guess about the grim battlefield ahead. Heading. TBI as fingerprint. Now that you know the backdrop of my particular incident, the rest of the book elaborates on what it's like to sustain and try to recover from a traumatic brain injury. In addition to testimony from other survivors I've interviewed, I describe in detail what many doctors and even neurologists don't know. I'm not being cocky here. You will read about some serious blind spots in the medical field about TBI, but the voices of survivors are being heard louder and clearer. 
What survivors discover is that the human brain is so complex that its injuries are as specific and personal as a fingerprint, but far more intricate, so intricate, at the neuron level in fact, that it is no wonder many brain injuries are so frequently misdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all. Traumatic brain injuries can also be debilitating in a bizarrely ironic way. Take my new friend, Greg, the firefighter, injured when the metal nozzle of a fire hose fell from the top of the fire truck onto the top of his head. Greg's internal gyroscope is so messed up, he can suffer such vertigo that he can't climb a ladder. We survivors, veterans in this battle together, can chuckle about the irony, but nobody else probably should. Although some of our symptoms overlap, my injury is different from Greg's. For example, mine prevents me from easily organizing and sorting not only physical things, but also ideas and information, which was a big part of what I did for a living for 25 years as an instructional designer. If I'm talking without a script, I easily bog down because it's hard for me to sort through ideas and select words, which often ends in confusion and stammering. Considering the respective injuries of a firefighter and a writer, it's easier, healthier, I guess, to say that the injury can be ironic than to say it's cruel. Once you say it's cruel, finger-pointing and recriminations are not far behind and recovery can begin to flag and even reverse itself when bogged down with attributing blame. I'm not being arrogant when I say that neurologists, young and old, and even summa cum laude from Harvard Medical School, don't know a lot of what is in this book. If our brain injuries are like our fingerprints, then only we can describe every line and crack and whorl. And if the process of neurotrauma rehabilitation were common knowledge among neurologists, if it were at all predictable the way, say, recovering from an appendectomy or knee surgery usually has a predictable trajectory, my early treatment and that of other survivors would have been different, and we believe our recovery would have been faster and more complete. So, I don't get nervous when I speak with my prepared remarks in front of doctors, caseworkers, or graduate students in training. As someone recovering from a brain injury, I am often revealing information that they couldn't possibly learn elsewhere. End of chapter one.